think about like what you're buying and think about needs versus wants, you know, think about like how you're participating in these systems. And if thinking about that makes you uncomfortable, do something to change that. So that's the goal for me. I don't just want this because the planet needs this. I want it because I feel so much better about everything now. I think my wardrobe is better. I don't have to spend so much time feeling like I'm not good enough because I don't have something new this season. It has been a really, really good thing for me. And I want that for every person that reads the book. Hello and welcome to the Grounded Families podcast with me, Julia Goodall, psychologist and coach. This is a podcast for all families navigating life, love and relationships. We delve into our stories and experiences of family and how these go on to shape and change who we are. I'm so happy to have you here. Hello, welcome back to the Grounded Families podcast. I am so excited to get going with a new season after the summer and I have some really wonderful guests in line, Um, some I've chatted to already and some are scheduled. I've also got a few solo episodes that I'll be recording and these are in response to either people's questions or things that come up um, really frequently that people have asked me to speak to. So there's lots in store and I'm really excited to be doing this again. I've missed um, the weekly podcast. Um, and today's guest is a huge, was a huge honor. So I spoke to Aja Barber. She is a writer, stylist and consultant and speaker in the area of sustainability and fashion. She is a wonder and a force. Um, and I was so, so honored that she took time to speak with me. Aja is somebody I've followed for years online and um, learned such a great deal from. Um, and yes, it was quite magical and I was a tiny bit starstruck when we started chatting. And she, yeah, was lovely and warm and shared in a really kind of open and wonderful way. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Her book, Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism is coming out. So when this is released, it will be the next day. It's coming out on the 23rd of September. And so, I mean, I guess you could still order it, pre-order it. Otherwise, do order it. It um, promises to be really, really interesting. Aja talks us through a little bit about her hopes for the book, her writing of the book, and also what kind of led her to doing this sort of work, which is sort of much needed and hugely impactful work at the moment. So yes, I hope you enjoy this episode and I will chat to you again soon. Today on the podcast, I'm really, really grateful to chat to Aja Barber. She is a writer, stylist, consultant, and speaker, um, mostly in the area of sustainability and fashion. Author soon to be. I know, next week. It's really, um, I'm still in disbelief by it all, to be honest. Oh my gosh. And I, I, I'm sort of trying to get into the habit of saying, well, I'm an author, and it just sounds kind of like... <laughs> ridiculous like I feel like I'm a kid playing dress up in someone else's clothing that's so cool though so exciting (laughs) I saw your um, pictures of books arriving and you signing things and I just thought oh gives me tingles not even my book oh you know what it's like um it's really exciting and like I know a lot of people I know it's really easy to like 
take that stuff for granted, especially if you're the type of person who's always sort of had this like level of like notoriety or whatever. Mm. I hope to never take it for granted because it's it's amazing and it's wonderful. And yeah, it is. it's great. It's magic. And it's literally dispersed throughout the world. That's what I always think about books is like these tiny accessible things that people can dig into. And you get to be, yeah, I guess a voice in people's heads. And I think that's, yeah, a really big yeah. deal. <laughs> and for me, I think, you know, obviously I've always wanted to be an author, even though I kind of felt like the world wasn't like, hey, little black girl, you can be an author too when you grow up. You know, there's there's a part of me that is still in just like disbelief about it, but also like just really happy and also happy that it's done because writing a book is, <laughs> is uh you know, people are like, I want to write a book. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a labor of love. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've heard it's It's like really hard work. Oh, man. And then everything that comes along with it, the kind of, you know, having to market it and speak to people and do things like this. And um, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I really like speaking to people. So like in some ways, it's, it's great because <laughs> like my happy space is having just a good conversation with someone. Um, I joke with my husband saying that I've made a career out of just being able to chat and speak with people. <laughs> so I'm with you with that. Your husband is way like, like, that's awesome. My husband told me he was like, you managed to make a career about bitching about things that annoy you. <laughs> he did it live, but also like, shut up. <laughs> shush, shush. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That's actually, maybe I'll dive into that now. That's kind of something that I wanted to ask about before we speak about book and um, trajectory. But I'm really curious about things like that as well, because you, I feel like over the last few years, you've exploded. Um, and I wonder what's, what that's like for a relationship and, you know, yeah, for being with someone in that context. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So <laughs> our whole situation, I in some ways I'm always sort of in awe that like we're still going strong because yeah. you know a lot of people don't know this but we actually met online and dated long distance oh, wow. overseas for two years but he was here and you were in the states yeah oh, wow. he was in London and I was in the U.S. and you know we we dated long distance we'd see each other every four to five months wow. usually and spend a lot of time together and uh, then it's like okay you know what we want to be together but we can't just you know date in a casual way so you know looks like looks like we're getting married like we, you know <laughs> I love you yeah I love you too great all right well let's let's do it so because that's the next step like I can't just like yeah. move here and just be like I'm just gonna casually date you and move overseas <laughs> you can't go back exactly no and so um you that's know amazing. you take two adults who are older because we are we we met each other later in life we didn't meet in our 20s and uh, it's like, okay, great. Now we're going to cram you together in a really small London flat with all of your stuff. And like, you know, when you date long distance, it's great because you get like the, you get all the beauty of like the person. Mm. You don't get like their, their weird habits <laughs> or like their shoe collection <laughs> or this and that. And so like, you're literally taking two people who were older and set in their ways and being like, let's smash them together <laughs> in a tiny flat. And then on top of that, let's bring in a global pandemic. <laughs> so they really have to stare at each other every day. Trapped inside the <laughs> tiny flat. Wow. You know, I've, I really think about it and I'm like, 
wow, we have been through the ranks. And on top of that, it's like, you know, and then to make it extra fun, let's let's have her career just shut off into the sky, <laughs> you know? Wow. And it's just like, I mean, we don't even have an office. I'm talking to you right now from her dining room table, which is my you know, sort of office, yeah. you know, but it would be really nice to have a space to like mm. work from. And I had to write the book at this dining room table. And Stephen, I would argue he's very much a minimalist. He doesn't okay. have a lot of stuff. I would argue, you know, at least a good 60% of what's in this flat is mine, <laughs> 70 probably, you know, he's good. a minimalist. And so like you basically take a minimalist and a maximalist and stick them together in a flat and then also throw in a global, you know, pandemic and a lockdown, multiple lockdowns (laughs) and a career. And it's like, whew, it's kind of been a lot in the last four years. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, that is a lot. That is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, at times I think, yes, obviously, there has been a toll on every romantic relationship I know possible during the pandemic. And ours is no exception to the rule. Mm. And also I I get, I suffer from seasonal depression every February. It just comes on Mm. really hard. And this February, Steve had it too, because we were in lockdown. So that, that was the moment where we really, really, really struggled, I think. But, you know, we're, we're coming out of it, but it doesn't help that we didn't have like, the best summer here you know what i mean i think we can say the worst summer of we're getting it now like today is gorgeous and yesterday was yeah it was awful yesterday was gorgeous today is gorgeous but we really didn't get summer summer Mm. and now it's like we're going back into the dark days you know you have that dread of oh it's coming it's getting darker i really struggle with that too it's just i need at least a few months of the year with sun and putting i don't know washing outside and you know being able to do stuff and if you don't have that it's like you don't top up enough to move into another british winter it's hard we don't even we don't even have like a space to put our washing outside so it's sort of like we're, we're really we're really tightly packed in here. And then mm. we were like, you know what? Let's add some cats to the mix. <laughs> I'm asking, let's add some kittens to the mix. Not just one, but two. <laughs> Why not? Well, we were originally going to get one. And then we got a random photo sent to us on WhatsApp. And someone said, these these little kitties need a home. And uh, I was like, okay. So I called to ask about one. And the guy was like, okay, well, there's two left. And... You know, the one cat, I really want to find a very special home for her because she's really special and mm. a bit needy. And I just thought I had originally told Steve that I wanted a black cat. Steve wanted a tabby. There was a black cat and a tabby left. There you go. And I was just like, <laughs> I hung up the phone and said, hey, Steve, looks like we're getting two kittens. And he was like, what? <laughs> oh, and here man. we are. <laughs> Yikes. I just have an image of you guys like there's like a cauldron and you've just thrown in and then this and then this and then this and then this. I just think, oh wow. Exactly. I mean, when we talk about family planning, you know, obviously this is something that we're thinking about, but like I I really there were times when I was quite grateful that I wasn't pregnant during the pandemic, that I wasn't, you know, that we didn't have a small little one during the pandemic. Mm. Because I just think Hopefully, you know, in a year's time, we'll hopefully be in a bigger space. That would be good. But yeah, the the only thing we could really squeeze was two cats. 
not a baby into this mix. No, oh, too yeah. tight. My brother has a young, he's a toddler now, but uh, like a mm-hmm. baby in the pandemic. And he, they're in a flat in London and they really, really struggled. I think just pushes you to the very edges of what you can do and what feels possible. So, yeah. Oof. I was very jealous of people that had backyards during yeah. all of it. Like I was so like just very very jealous because I just I mean we have a shared courtyard but it's not like a backyard that you hang out in Mm, like the cats love it (laughs) yeah the cats love it but it's not it's it's not that space so we are hoping to maybe move into a bigger space in the future so that we have just a little bit of room Mm, and that quiet time on your own um oh well so you know how you say you met online and I kind of feel Mm -hmm. like in many ways that would have prepared you for this because it's like this fast tracking that happens. Cause I think we think about relationships that if you meet people and you know something about them just cause you've met kind of face to face, but I actually think there's so much randomness involved. It's just like timing and being in a place at the right time or at a time. Um, and something about online dating actually makes you connect in a much more intimate way. Um, and so I wonder if that also like really prepared you. Yes and no. So I think when we were like courting, more or less, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I felt like we actually were super open with each other. Okay. Like really, really like scratched at like everything and sort of we were really good about communicating. And I would argue that when we got together face to face, we got worse at communicating in some ways because I think you tend to take the person in front of you for granted. And you assume, yeah. I think we normally, yeah, we assume we take for granted. So I would say that if anything, our communication skills definitely need dusting off. Mm, So interesting. I think, yeah, we all do that. It's like, I know you so well, so therefore you must have Mm -hmm. meant this or you must have, you know, this must have been your intention. It's exactly that. We have so many like, misunderstandings where when you're writing back and forth to each other there's very little room for misunderstanding and you can ask for clarity and Mm -hmm. and so on and I just feel like yeah I think we're we're sort of finding our way back to learning how to be like Mm -hmm. better communicators with each other it's hard and it's kind of stilted we've had to do the same it's like really learn how to do that I don't feel like I had a really great model of that growing up and so I feel like I'm just piecing it together I feel that I agree with you on that one for sure yeah I think the previous generation like I think that there is so much trauma particularly in in the baby boomer generation and a lot of like undealt with like psychological mental you know just they they were not told to care about their feelings and to care about themselves Mm -hmm. in the same way that our generation has sort of started to prioritize that you know obviously as a society we have way far to go as far as like prioritizing mental health and whatnot yeah but I feel like our parents generation got none of that and I think in some ways we we look to them and say like why can't you be better (laughs) but they simply don't have the tools to yeah it's true it's so true about the trauma as well it's like these little packages of pain that no one taught them what to do with oh gives me the creeps actually and then it all just trickling down um yeah can you my older sister and I have been talking a lot about like how to like break the generational curses Mm -hmm. you know and how to not make the same mistakes and it's hard it really is you have to be very aware of like Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff 
And even if you're aware of it, it's hard. I feel yeah, like exactly. I find myself like with my own kids doing stuff that I think, oh, like I consciously don't want to do that. But it, yeah. if you're in a mode of feeling stressed, overwhelmed, whatever, and you just fall back into it because that's how you were parented. So I yeah. guess it's, yeah, it's hard. Can you tell me a tiny bit about your family and kind of what it was like growing up? Oh, so um, I was a middle child, okay, <laughs> <laughs> which probably explains a lot about my personality yeah. and just how I am. I have two siblings, uh, two sisters, okay. so it's all girls. Yeah. <sighs> Intense. <laughs> I I grew up in Northern Virginia in a very affluent area. Yeah. Um, Fairfax County Public Schools always rates really highly on like best places to like send your kid to school in the country, that sort yeah. of thing. And uh, I think growing up in an affluent area is great because you have like tons of privileges and I will be the first person to acknowledge that. But I think my family was fairly like lower middle class. Okay. And because of that, I think it gave me a really weird perception of our wealth and financial privileges. Like basically growing up, I thought we were poor. And that's something I talk about in the book. Because we were surrounded by rich assholes. And so, you know, I didn't have the right clothing. And that was what sort of led me into my interest in fashion was always feeling like I didn't have the right things. And maybe those girls would be nicer to me and invite me to the sleeping park sleepover if I had you know all my shirts from the gap like they did so like that launched like an immediate obsession with Mm. like the gap like obsessed obsessed because I definitely felt like maybe if I just fit in through material items then maybe they'd be nicer to me and the truth is they probably would not have been yeah but um I kind of felt like my my family you know my parents are in beautiful neighborhood you know my dad works and my my mom was at home with us until we were about teenagers. And I just always felt like we were poor growing up because we didn't live in big single family homes, mm. you know. And yeah, it, there were all these signifiers. And also my parents didn't give us allowance. Like we had mm, to have like part-time jobs from like a very young age. I mean, I started pet sitting and babysitting probably by the time I was, you know, started pet sitting at like age eight and paper routing at like age eight and then babysitting by the time I was 10 and my peers didn't have to do that to get spending Mm. money so all of these things gave me this weird perception that we were poor but in actuality we weren't at Mm. all but then I was also a middle child so that comes with its own like complexes (laughs) you know (laughs) on its own yeah um you know the middle child always sort of I think when you're a middle child, you kind of have to be a squeaky wheel because Mm -hmm. the oldest is like, you're the oldest, uh, you get everything, you're the firstborn of this generation, you get all the things. And then the youngest, I think the parents are sort of like, you're the youngest, you're, you know, you're our last chance to really sort of get things right, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I don't know, I just felt like as a child, I, I sometimes got overlooked so yeah, I was a middle child and I do feel like middle children have to sort of, you really sort of have to like 
fight for that spotlight mm, sometimes. I and I, I definitely, I think it's impacted who I am as an adult for sure. Exactly. And like my willingness to sort of put myself out there with opinions that might not be super popular at the moment, but mm. will eventually become popular and mainstream. Yeah. So yeah, I think I my that. childhood has completely informed who I am mm. today. And additionally, with like all of my complexes and neuroses, you know? <laughs> everyone has them. It's so all int- the good and all the bad <laughs> mixed into that. Oh, it's so interesting because I was I'm an older, like the eldest, and so and then my brother was the middle child, and I was always so jealous that he got to be like the loud, shouting for attention person. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's so like fascinating to hear the like the other perspective, but I think you're so right about that middle child being overlooked because you're quickly moved along. Like you quickly have to be a toddler. You quickly have to look after yourself because there's you a new baby. You quickly have to be a yeah. toddler. I I remember you know, I I loved when my sister arrived as a, as a baby, but mm. I did feel like you know it was sort of like, well, when are you going to learn how to do this stuff? Yeah. It's like, I'm four. <laughs> I'm tiny. I know. I'm so tiny. I'm still actually a baby just because you're yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's so interesting. And it's so interesting also that you still have those conversations as adults. Like that mm-hmm. that influence is still there that you're still sort of squabbling about. Yeah. Oh, like. my goodness. <laughs> I don't think we shake our – we like – like I think everyone likes to think that we shake yep. these like childhood roles, but we don't nope. at all, I think. <laughs> You know, we can be aware of them, but, mm. like, somehow that hierarchy always sort of plays out, whether we like it or not. And slide back into it as soon as you see each other. It's so yeah. strong. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, man. We um we sometimes call my brother the baby Jesus because he'd <laughs> he's also just <laughs> doted on in a particular way. And we still go into that. Like, oh, it's, it's the baby Jesus. <laughs> Well, then I think as an adult, it also changes because like whoever has children first, right? Like that, like my older sister um, has two little ones, my niece and my nephew. They are just the, I just love those two so much Mm. and I miss them so much. It's been a real side effect of being in a global pandemic Mm. is I really, really miss them. And I'm missing two years out of their life, which they're moving towards like adolescence, which means that... They're going to be completely different people when I see them, hopefully, at Christmas. Yeah. But, um, you know, so my older sister is the only one with kids. And, you know, as a result, she she's obviously things change when little ones arrive and that's where the priorities shift. And so mm-hmm. I think that definitely impacts how your parents sort of how much they have to give to you and how much they have to give to the other, mm-hmm. you know, it's true. And so that, it, yeah, we sort of just always fall into these things you know if you're if you're like the middle child and you have children first then maybe that sort of shakes the dynamic yeah. but I didn't meet my partner until I was in my you know mid-30s yeah so and so yeah it stays within that role mm-hmm. yeah absolutely Aja can you tell me a little bit about like how you got into this book so like in terms of trajectory not necessarily career-wise but mm-hmm. how did you get here you've told me like a little bit of that around like kids at school and growing up in this mm-hmm. kind of particular setting just being ragged on for my clothing at school obviously made me quite obsessive with some brands and then from that grew a genuine interest but I never shook that self-consciousness about not being good enough I didn't shake that until I was probably about 
this age o'clock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I struggled with that, which made me the perfect fast fashion consumer. Oh my goodness. The minute I, I remember the first time I visited an H&M. I remember the first time I visited Topshop and Zara and that sort of stuff. And that happened in Europe. Mm. And then when they came over to the US, I was just like, this is it. I am in it. I am in it. Because (laughs) there was a part of me that had so many childhood insecurities from my clothing and being made fun of for my clothing and not feeling like I ever had the right clothing and Mm. wearing my sister's hand-me-downs. I always talk about this, but Mm. honestly hand-me-downs so there's a five-year age difference between us and that means that a sweater that my sister wore in 1987 mm. was really painfully uncool in oh. 1992 <laughs> it just makes you feel like and my mom would kid. be like it's a nice sweater you're gonna wear that for picture day and i was just thinking i am going to get eaten alive and oh. sure enough i did yeah. i could see i could see what was gonna happen so like you know those sorts of like things really just impacted who I grew up to to become and I think it really obviously um impacted who I became as as an adult and how I participated in fast fashion Mm. but at the same time I also was someone who was always very aware of not just environmental issues but social issues uh when I was 10 my mom randomly bought me a book called like 50 things kids can do to save the planet and I became like really obsessed because I had no idea that the planet was dying I didn't realize mm-hmm. and it seemed like it was a time period where everyone was starting to talk about it and okay. then it, I got to high school and it just sort of died off a bit mm, I know what you, you mean. know what yeah. I mean yeah and now we're we're hurtling towards climate emergency but this whole time I've been thinking about all of these things and also thinking about how the decision making that that we make how does it impact that and yeah. here i am you know buying probably hundreds of items of clothing a year yeah. at my peak not feeling good about it but like lying to myself and being like no i like having a lot of choice i'm participating in fashion instead of realizing that like no actually you really are not enjoying this and you know you don't enjoy it because sometimes when you come home from like the mall it feels like you've just eaten an entire like it's like a binge fat chocolate yeah. cake and yeah. it doesn't feel good you know or you feel ashamed about it mm-hmm. you know like i'm literally like hiding clothing in my car so that my mom doesn't like complain about it and like you know sass me about it so yeah. i was always really aware of these these social and environmental issues and I think I, it, it took me volunteering at my mom's favorite charity shop one summer. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that I thought that like, oh, maybe I just buy a lot of clothing because I'm really into fashion. But what I used, what I realized was that like, like the entire world was buying a lot of clothing. Mm-hmm. This had become the way we shopped. And I knew this because every day these donations would come in and it would be a mountain of black bin bags which we would go through and then you would come back and the mountain would be just replenished overnight. And I was like, okay, this is one charity shop Mm. in in Northern Virginia out of thousands in America. If this is what our daily intake looks like, Mm. I think this might be an ecological problem. And that charity shop was great too because after I would volunteer there, I'd go to the mall and be like, 
(laughs) You know, just knowing that like a lot of the selection would be somebody else's problem. But then I didn't even know the extent of which it was becoming somebody else's problem Mm -hmm. until I started to really, you know, look at the numbers and look at places like Ghana and Kenya and Rwanda and how they were getting these massive pallets of like clothing donations that were unhelpful and polluting their environment. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, okay. All right. Now I see, mm. you know, Cantamonto market receives 15 million items of clothing estimated every week, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of clothing. And so I really sort of started to, to just look around and be like, Oh, the system is really sorted from top to bottom, mm. basically. Oh man, it's a lot. And something about the visual, um I don't know, I respond to things really visually. And so something about seeing all those black bags, um, yeah, it must have made left such an impact. So I, I feel like I existed on the other side of that, of what you described, mm-hmm. is that when I grew up in South Africa, it was we didn't have lots of lots of anything like lots Mm -hmm. of big chains and things like that and so but watching lots of kind of american and uk tv it also i guess i aspired to that as like lots of lots of kind of cheap stuff that you can get amazing Mm -hmm. things for a really cheap price and also i remember growing up like as a teenager those pallets you describe there was a place Mm -hmm. that would yeah, they would kind of dump them there. It was a huge warehouse and you could go and as teenagers, it was really exciting, but it used to, they like come from America and there was just, yeah, a warehouse just full of clothes and you literally could like sift through and they would, you know, sell you stuff. Um, but a lot of it was because it was redirected from charities that they just could not process it. They couldn't use it. They couldn't like get it to people who actually needed it. And so then I guess, yeah, just sort of white middle class kids buying it. Yeah. Um, and so it- I didn't I didn't realize that, you know, pallets arrived at South Africa. I should have probably suspected it. But yeah. Well, yeah. I guess like also just overflows that. Yeah. They just literally didn't know what to do with stuff. And I guess someone just thought, oh, let's just sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so interesting to hear like the other um side of that and I remember also coming to the UK for the first time I mean I was barely outside of being a teenager Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember also going into an H&M and just being like oh my goodness these clothes are so so cheap that Mm -hmm. means that you can be a waitress like that's basically what I'd done since I was 16 and Mm -hmm. you can buy your own clothes and for me that totally blew my mind that yeah you can go and buy a whole outfit and like not spend that much money yeah but also do i need that many whole outfits well exactly and that came later but in the beginning like i can see you know where people get pulled into it and like Mm -hmm. that we've been sold this we have to look a particular way and then next season we have to look a different way and you won't be accepted if you don't look like this and like you say there's yeah. like social signifiers um ugh. and so it's so hard to kind of step outside of that i so the thing is fast fashion came into full fruition pretty much by the time i was like an adult so like 18 20 yeah we didn't always exist that way and that's something that i speak to a lot is that particularly for like gen y or gen z people particularly for gen z people this is all they know Mm. but for me i remember a time period where like a lot of clothing was bought at department stores maybe there would be some stores that sort of like cater to teenagers and Mm. like young people but like the department store was kind of 
king and I remember we didn't have so much choice. You had choice, but it wasn't like mm-hmm. today where it's just like, oh my goodness, there are so many options. Yeah. And I I kind of think in some ways that was better. I also remember when we paid more money for our yep. clothing. Absolutely. You know, I remember when a pair of like jeans would sometimes cost you between 30 to $40, which in mm. inflation in today's money, that's way more money than what we're paying for things from like fast fashion brands, Mm, you know? So I think part of what's missing from the conversation is that I I think we have a very short-term memory when Mm. it comes to like what it could be and what we have lived through. And so, Mm. yeah, I remember before it became fast fashion central, but even then, like I wasn't the type of person where my mom would be like, oh, I'm going to take you to the mall and buy you a new outfit. I mostly wore my sister's hand-me-downs and I would get occasional new clothing, but it wasn't clothing that I wanted. It was generally stuff that my mother would be like, that's nice. I'll buy that for you. And it's like, (laughs) but that's not me. And I've always been someone who's extremely aware of Mm. sartorially how I want it to look and the image that I want it to sort of perceive and and give to the world of me. And so that was kind of the first things that my mom and I really started to like fight over was that like, I want it a certain look and she didn't approve of like really anything my mother is very like she's very conservative in her style of mm, dress okay. and so she doesn't really get like a lot of trends or anything I remember mm. there were these blouses in the 90s that were like they would call them the pirate blouse uh, and yeah. it was like my mom used to call them floozy tops <laughs> Oh no. If that gives you any indicator of who she is. <laughs> so funny. It's like all that stuff around. I remember my mum wanting me to wear those oh, what are those dresses with like the I feel like the royal kids here wear them. Um like smocked dresses. Mm-hmm. And then all sort of very pretty. And because I had two brothers, I was never never into dresses and I always felt mm-hmm. the kind of weight of that, like, oh, I don't want to wear this stuff. It's like it's yeah. not functional. I can't climb a tree in it. It's not mm-hmm. it's not good for me. But yeah, also that conservative idea of this is what you should look like. Yeah, and also my mom is religious. I'm I'm not, I'm agnostic. Yeah. But you know, growing up she like there are things I'll never wear again. Like I will never wear pantyhose again. Like for my Where? mom, it's like pantyhose <laughs> to wear to church. And oh, I wow. was just like, I hate this. And I'm never going to wear this again for the rest of my life. I'm never wearing this. <laughs> and I have not worn a pair of pantyhose since. <laughs> the most restrictive, awful things. And you yeah, don't have they to. Are. And pick. also they tear so easily. Yep. You know, it's just like, Oh, look, I've torn these. Like, what is the point of this? <laughs> and always hanging just a little bit below your crotch. <laughs> yeah, like... always, always. When you get, like, the little, like, the gusset yeah. is, like, almost down, like, halfway down uh, your thighs. And you're just so like, gross. I just want to take them out and throw them away. That's what I want. <laughs> so I love this. And I love so much how it's, like, I guess your journey into this book is such a personal one as well. And, of course, it's a global one, but also a really personal one. And yeah. what do you kind of wish that people take away from it? Do you have a hope around that? My hope is that there are people that read the book and go, yeah, you know what? I buy clothing like once a month and I don't want to do that anymore. Mm. I buy clothing once a week and I don't want to do that anymore. I just, I don't want to participate in this mm. in the same way. And that doesn't mean 
oh, I'm only going to buy dresses that cost X amount of money because I know that like financially not everyone can make that pledge. But I think we all can basically say, right, I'm only getting 20 items of clothing this year, so I need to make them really, mm. really good. And I need to make sure that whatever I bring into my wardrobe, I'm going to truly care for it. I mean, right now I scrutinize over any purchase that I make yeah. because I have to be thoughtful about how I, you know, dispose of purchases. And we don't really have, I, I can't be in this position as the person I am and just be like, oh yeah, I just dumped a bunch of it on a charity's doorstep. Like, no, I just can't do that. Mm. And so I think of new clothing as you are now a, the steward of, of that item of clothing. You are responsible for repairing it if it falls apart. You're responsible for thoughtfully um, disposing of it mm. because every item we purchase on is for a lot of it, especially things made out of fossil fuels, plastics, polyesters is still on this planet. Yeah. And so I, I live with the guilt of my past mistakes, Oof. which means that now when I want to bring something new into my wardrobe, I really scrutinize mm. like, is this going to get worn a hundred times and will it even last a hundred times? Yeah, exactly. Because for a lot of clothing, wow. we know that it's not built to last in that way. And so mm -hmm. if I can just get, you know, thousands of people to start slowing down and kind of stick it to the fast fashion makers, because the truth is they need us to buy clothing and consume clothing rapidly in order to turn a profit if a lot of us stop doing that, the profits stop being so high for them. Mm -hmm. And then they go, okay, well, we've clearly are losing people. How do we get them back? And I think that's the only way that we'll get some of these bigger brands to do things the right way. Mm -hmm. Because at the minute, as long as it's hand over fist, billions of dollars every year, millions of dollars every year in profit, mm -hmm. no one has any incentive to change anything. Yep. So my goal is to just get the person who doesn't think that any of this has anything to do with them mm. to really start thinking about their place in, in, in it. And mm. it's all going to, it's going to look different for every person. There's no like subscribe formula of you must do this or you must sure. do that. But think about like what you're buying and think about needs versus wants, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. think about like how you're participating in these systems. And if, thinking about that makes you uncomfortable do something to change that yeah. so that's the goal for me oh and that's an exciting goal I feel like yeah like you say even if a few like hundred thousand people do that it's a really big impact it's impactful it's yeah. impactful and that's that's ultimately what I want I just want people and, and I, I I don't just want that because obviously the planet is like burning and this is contributing to it but I also want that because I think people will be surprised how good they feel mm. when they start to not feel controlled by all of this so mm. much because that's essentially what it is. I mean, if you go out in London and count the amount of ads you see in a day. Oh, yeah, it's full on. I, was, I did it for five minutes yesterday in London and I got to 20 ads in five minutes. Oof. You know, yeah, and I, I, I lost track because I was trying to do something. 
But I remember thinking like, oh my goodness. So we think that like we're not being controlled by these systems. We think that like participating in a system that tells you that like all the dresses that you have from last year are mm -hmm. no longer good enough for this year. You need something new for the wedding and you need something new for this event and you need a new thing for a job interview. Maybe that person you're going out on a date with will like you better if you have, you know, X amount of blah, 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 blah. And so we think that we're not controlled by this system, but in actuality, we are. Mm -hmm. And we think that all of this is free will, but this idea of 51 seasons of clothing a year has been sold wow. to us because it yeah. wasn't that way when we were a kid. It was, you know, four seasons a year. Yeah. Six seasons, you know, but I think we all think that, like, this is our free will and this is what mm -hmm. we want. But in actuality, when I stepped away from all of this I found that I just felt so much better mm. I had clarity of mind I had more money in my pocket because one year I added up all my fast fashion receipts from one store yeah. and I had spent over a thousand dollars there without even realizing it wow. and at the time I wasn't even making that much money I was living in my parents basement mm. and I think I made like $12,000 that year so I had wow. spent like one-tenth of my income mm -hmm. on a store that is owned by a billionaire and that was when I was like Ugh. oh no this has <laughs> got to stop this is and I think that's a lot of fast fashion consumers I don't think that I'm like out of the norm there oh. I think I think that most people think I shop this way because it's cheap that's what I can afford, whatever. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, if you're not really, really keeping track of what you're doing, you are spending far more money than you, and you realize than you, you really are. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I don't just want this because the planet needs this. I want it because I feel so much better about everything now. I think my wardrobe is better. I don't have to spend so much time feeling like I'm not good enough yeah. because I don't have something new this season mm. it has been a really really good thing for me and I want that for every person that reads the book oh, to step off that wheel I wonder so much about the emotional impact because like, when you talk about it it sounds a lot like the similarities with food and like you even said earlier something about coming out of a mall and just feeling that like binge feeling um, yeah. not feeling great and I wonder yeah. also that if people stop and have time to look at this and to kind of look at what they're doing and why they're doing it that actually there'll be space for like what's going on emotionally like you said like feelings of worth and um, being acceptable and yeah I wonder what swims around in the murkiness of all of that for people yeah it's a complex I thing I think the thing is, I think our society tells us that we are consumers first and foremost mm. from a very young age. I think that consumption is sold to us at every avenue through media, films, movies, you know, like mm. all the makeover scenes that you see in all the movies that we love. Yeah. That's a part of it. It's you know, true. this idea that if you get a different look and become a different person, that it, it will change you into a different person and that that person over there will look at you differently. Wow. It's like the pretty woman trope. You the know? pretty woman yeah. trope. Uh, you see it in Clueless as well. Yeah. There's the, that trope in Clueless. Yeah. Um, uh, the Devil Wears Prada. Oh, wow. yeah. She gets a makeover in that scene as well. Yeah. It's literally everywhere. And so this has been like really sort of brought into our heads that like you need, if you 
want to be respected by somebody who doesn't respect you, you're going to need to, like, buy your way into that system, you know? Yikes. There's, like, heavy, heavy stuff. Well, it is, but it. I think once we began to have the tools to unpick all of that, I actually think that we feel really empowered in a mm, different way. And, it's okay. and that's what that's something I want for people, too. I want mm. you to feel free and empowered and to realize that, like, the system doesn't own you, mm, you know? That you have agency. You're a citizen. You're not a consumer. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it's coming out, Aja, on... 23rd. <laughs> um, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to arrive. And I feel like, yeah, it's like a really impactful book already. And I haven't read it. <laughs> I can't wait. And good luck for, um, yeah, all the stuff that comes along with this. I'm sure it's going to be exhausting as well. It will be. But also, I'm really looking forward to just meeting so many people. Like, yeah. it's been obviously, a, it's been it's been a long pandemic. Yeah. And it will be really nice to sort of just get out and, and meet mm. people. I mean, even before, you know, I wrote the book, I started doing museum meetups in London, okay. where I would just tell people I'm going to this museum on this day. Mm. If you want to come meet me in the oh. lobby at 1030. And it was so fun. It's so, cool. so good. Yeah. And I, I think it's important because like adult friendship is really hard. Yeah. It's hard. And I think it's something that we all struggle with. And so it's it's good because if you're meeting up with people who follow me, then you kind of already know that this person has been like fed it in some political way. You have like, obviously you've got similar issues, yeah. you know, we're all on the same page with like, hopefully we're all on the same page with like stuff about race and stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's just a really, really great way for people wow. to like meet new people. And I, I'm looking forward to that element of it. Yeah. I like to think of the space that I have on Instagram as a community yeah. more than anything else and I'm really proud of that and so mm -hmm. it's, it would be good to like get out meet there some and... of those people and the texture yes. of them yeah that's yeah, really cool absolutely that's the type of stuff that really inspires me even more mm -hmm. so I'm really like I'm ready, ready for, for it oh, chomping at the bit hooray I hope it goes <laughs> so so well um, thank you I'll be thinking of you and thanks again so much for your time I so appreciate it thank you for giving me this conversation and you know, putting up with my annoying cat. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't annoy me once. I only oh, distracted she's so you. <laughs> you. You, when you hear it, you'll hear her going. Ow, ow, ow. I honestly didn't. <laughs> she was okay. I'm going to let you get back to pancakes. I think I might make some for myself. <laughs> awesome. Well, have an excellent day. Yeah, and thank you, you again. Too. Thank you so much. Right. Roger. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you'd like to get in touch with Aja, you can find her on Instagram. Her tag is A-J-A-B-A-R-B-E-R, Aja Barber. Please do be respectful of her space. Her website is www.ajabarber.com and you can also support her work on Patreon, which all the details can be found on her Instagram. And please do buy and read her book and gift it to people. It's, yeah, I'm excited to see the kind of ripples of this amazing work. I also wanted to let you know that my couples retreat is still available and that is running from the 19th until the 21st of October at the beautiful, beautiful Elmley Nature Reserve. And I would love to have you. It is um, either for a couple 
um, if you would like to do that together as a couple or you can do it on your own um, and have a like a solo retreat with me whichever option you choose there will be um, a private shepherd's hut for you to stay in um, all your food will be catered and done for you um, it's in the magnificent magnificent Elmley nature reserve and so my idea is that the the surroundings will be a really important part in terms of um, opening up about where you are, thinking about what you're wanting in your relationship or um, on your own in your own life um, and making space for some rest and some recovery if necessary, um, all with me around for some coaching and some guidance. Um, and any sort of support that you might be needing in that way. You can find out more on my website www.groundedfamilies.co.uk and you'll see at the top there's a link that says Bespoke Couples Retreat. I would absolutely love to have you. And next week I'm speaking to the wonderful Nat Raybold. Um, so do tune in for that. Okay, chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for being here today. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm on Instagram at grounded underscore families. You can send me a DM or a voice note to my DMs or an email. I'd so love to hear from you. Please do like, share and subscribe this podcast. It really, really helps to get the podcast out in front of more listeners. And I'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye.